0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 13, the first of several parts concerning the Sumerians. Last week, I wrapped up the Babel story with a dive into the origin of the world's diverse languages. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week is the first episode on the history of Sumer, and quite honestly, this begins a new segment in the podcast. As we truly begin to cover the history of the world and how it intersects with the history found in the Bible. So let's get started. I chose to cover the Sumerians at this point, not because they were the first post flood civilization mentioned in Genesis. The Egyptians and the Canaanites were mentioned a few verses earlier, but while these were first mentioned, it was the Sumerians, initially found in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, that played a pivotal role in the next major portion of the book. Well, It wasn't actually the Sumerians, but a specific city, that of Ur, also known as Uruk, a Sumerian city that Genesis refers to. You see, the next part of the Genesis narrative focuses on Abraham, and he was born in Ur. I'll get to the Egyptians and the Canaanites in due time. This episode doesn't get too deep into what would be considered the usual history with dates and names, but it sets the stage for the next episode where that will be the topic. Instead, today, I'll discuss what it was that set the Sumerians apart from the other cultures and peoples of that time. Sumer was one of the ancient civilizations in a historical region in southern Mesopotamia, in what is modern-day southern Iraq and Kuwait, during the Chalcolithic and the early Bronze Ages. The Chalcolithic Age was a time when most metallurgy was copper-based, but prior to the discovery of how to smelt bronze. I'll get to the Bronze Age in just a bit. Although the earliest specimens of writing in the region do not go back much further than about 2500 BC, modern historians have suggested that Sumer was probably first permanently settled between about 5500 and 4000 BC by a non-Semitic people who spoke the Sumerian language. These historians use the names of the cities, rivers, basic occupations, and the like as evidence of their theories. I'm going to take a minute because I've dropped the term Bronze Age a few times and I'll explain what this actually means. The Bronze Age is the second part of the Three Age system that also includes the Stone Age and the Iron Age. This system is used to classify prehistoric societies, particularly the ancient societies of the Mediterranean and the Near East. By its definition, the Bronze Age of any culture is the period during which the most advanced metalworking and widespread use in that culture uses bronze. So far, not terribly complicated. This use of bronze could either be based on the local smelting of copper and tin from ores, or trading for bronze from production areas elsewhere. In case you didn't know, bronze is an alloy consisting primarily of copper, commonly with tin and often with the addition of other metals such as aluminum, manganese, nickel, or zinc. These additions produce a range of alloys that may be harder than the copper alone, or may have other useful properties such as stiffness, ductility, or machinability. But that's modern bronze, and will serve as your award for third place. Ores of copper and the far rarer tin are not often found together, so serious bronze work has always involved trade. And just as important as the usefulness of the tools, the development of the associated trade is a major consideration as to why this age proved pivotal in world history. Consequently, Tin sources and trade in ancient times had a major influence on the development of cultures. From a historical perspective, there were no tin bronzes in Western Asia before about 3000 BC. The place and time of the invention of bronze are controversial. It is possible that bronzing was invented independently in the Maikot culture in the Northern Caucasus as far back as the mid-4th millennium BC, which would make them the makers of the oldest known bronze, but others date the same Mycop artifacts to the mid-3rd millennium BC. However, the Mycop culture had only arsenic bronze, which is a naturally occurring alloy, and therefore required no trade to formulate the bronze. Tin bronze, which developed later, requires more sophisticated production techniques. Tin has to be mined, mainly as the tin or cassiterite and smelted separately, then added to molten copper to make the bronze alloy. In Mesopotamia, the Bronze Age begins around 2900 BC in the late Uric period, spanning the early dynastic period of Sumer, the Akkadian Empire, the old Babylonian and old Assyrian periods, as well as the Kassite period. In ancient Egypt, the Bronze Age begins in the proto-dynastic period, around 3150 BC. The meanings of these name periods will be explained in the future. The Aegean Bronze Age begins around 3000 BC, when civilizations first established a far-ranging trade system. This system imported tin and charcoal to Cyprus, where copper was mined and essentially smelted with the tin to produce bronze. Bronze objects were then exported far and wide and supported the trade. Knowledge of sea navigation was fairly well developed at this time and reached a peak that would not be surpassed, except maybe by the Polynesian seafarers until about 1730 A.D when the invention of the chronometer enabled the precise determination of longitude. In Central Europe, the early Bronze Age culture occurred between about 1800 and 1600 BC, over a full millennium after that of the Aegeans. But back to Sumer. With the establishment of the cities of Sumer, their history unfolds from approximately 5000 to 1750 BC, at which time the Sumerians ceased to exist as a separate culture. This was after Sumer was invaded by the Elamites and Amorites. First there was the Ube period, which was from about 5,000 to 4,100 BC. Then came the Uruk period, from about 4,100 to 2,900 BC, in which the cities began to emerge across the landscape and the city of Uruk rose in prominence. Though the period is named for the so-called first city of Uruk, Uridu was considered the first city by the Sumerians themselves. Trade was firmly established with foreign lands at this time, and writing evolved from pictograms to cuneiform script. It is thought that trade was the main motivator in the development of writing, as there now had to be some means for accurate, long-distant communication between the merchant's assumer and their agents abroad. The kingship's assumer also arose at this time, and the city-state's assumer came to be ruled by a single monarch. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, let's begin in the beginning. The region of Sumer was long thought to have been first inhabited around 5000 BC. This date has been contested in recent years, however, and is now thought that human activity in the area began much earlier. The first settlers were not Sumerians, but of people of unknown origin whom archaeologists have termed the Ubaid people. These people were named for the excavated mound of Al-Ubaid, located in Iraq, near the Syrian border, where the artifacts were uncovered which first attested to their existence. They are also sometimes referred to as the Proto-Euphradians, simply meaning that they were the earlier inhabitants of the region of the Euphrates River. Whoever these people were, they had already moved from a hunter-gatherer society to an agrarian one prior to 5,000 BC. Excavations from Al Ubaid and other sites throughout southern Iraq have uncovered stone tools from the Ubaid people, such as hoes, knives, and adzes, along with clay artifacts, including bricks, painted pottery, and figurines. At what point the people who came to be known as the Sumerians entered the area is currently unknown. The Sumerian city-states rose to power during the prehistoric Ubaid and Uruk periods. Sumerian written history reaches back to the 27th century BC and before, but the historical record remains obscure until about the 23rd century BC, when a now-deciphered syllabic writing system was developed, which has allowed archaeologists to read contemporary records and inscriptions. Classical Sumer ends with the rise of the Akkadian Empire in the 23rd century BC. The Ubaidians are theorized to have evolved from the Samara culture of northern Mesopotamia, but there is no real evidence to support these theories, and they are really not much more than conjecture. The Ubaidians are assumed by modern day scholars to have been the first civilizing force in Sumer, draining the marshes for agriculture, developing trade, and establishing industries including weaving, leatherwork, metalwork, masonry, and pottery. But they were never mentioned by the Sumerians, at least in the tablets found to date. Whenever the Sumerian culture was first established in the region, by 3600 BC they had invented the wheel, riding, the sailboat, agricultural processes such as irrigation, and the concept of the city. Although China and India also lay claim to the first cities in the world, the Sumerians were a non-Semitic people, and spoke a language unlike others in the region. A number of linguists believe that they could detect a substrate language beneath Sumerian, because names of some of Sumer's major cities are not Sumerian, perhaps revealing influences of earlier inhabitants. However, the archaeological record shows clear uninterrupted cultural continuity from the time of the early Ubaid period around the sixth millennium BC settlements in southern Mesopotamia. It is speculated by some archaeologists that Sumerian speakers were farmers who moved down from the north, after learning irrigation-fed agriculture there. The Ubaid pottery of southern Mesopotamia has been connected to the earlier pottery of the Samara period culture in the north, who were the first to practice a primitive form of irrigation agriculture along the Middle Tigris River and its tributaries. The connection is most clearly seen at Tel Alulai, near Larsa, in southern Iraq excavated by the French in the 1980s, where pre-Ubaid pottery was found that resembled Sumerian containers. According to this view, the farming people spread down into southern Mesopotamia because they had developed a temple-centered social organization for mobilizing labor and technology for water control, enabling them to survive and prosper in a difficult environment. Other researchers have suggested the lineage of the Sumerians is from the indigenous Hunter Fisher people, associated with the Arabian peoples, found, of course, on the Arabian Peninsula. The Sumerians themselves claimed a relationship with the people of Dilmun, located in present-day Bahrain, on the northeast side of the Arabian Peninsula in the Persian Gulf. Professor Jiris Zarens of Missouri or Missouri State University believes the Sumerians may have been the people living in the Persian Gulf region before it flooded at the end of the last ice age. The Sumerians ushered in both domesticated crops and livestock with intensive agriculture and irrigation. Emmer wheat, barley, sheep, and cattle were foremost among the species cultivated and raised for the first time on a large scale. The Sumerian people who settled here farmed the lands in this region that were made fertile by the silt deposited by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. They adopted an agricultural lifestyle perhaps as early as about 5000 BC. The region demonstrated a number of core agricultural techniques, including organized irrigation, large-scale intensive cultivation of land, and the planting of single crops involving the use of the plow, and also the use of a specialized agricultural labor force under bureaucratic control. The necessity to manage temple accounts with this organization led to the development of writing around 3500 BC, which I'll cover in a minute. Beginning around 5,500 years ago, the Sumerians built cities along the rivers in lower Mesopotamia, specialized, cooperated, and made many advances in technology. The farmers in Sumer created levees to hold back the floods from their fields and cut canals to channel river water to the fields. The use of levees and canals for irrigation is considered a Sumerian invention. In the early Sumerian Uruk period, the primitive pictograms suggest that sheep, goats, cattle, and pigs were domesticated. They used oxen as their primary beast of burden and donkeys or horses as their primary transport animals. They also produced clothing and rugs from the wool or hair of the animals. They had gardens and pots bedded with trees or other fruit-bearing plants. Wheat and other cereals were sown in the fields. The shaduf, more commonly known in the West as a well pole, was already employed for the purposes of irrigation. It's a little hard to explain, so I'll post a picture of one on the podcast's Facebook page. The Sumerians practiced similar irrigation techniques as those used in Egypt at about the same time. Research suggests that irrigation development was associated with urbanization and that close to 90% of the population lived in cities. Although the Sumerian city-states had much in common, they fought for control of the river water, a valuable resource. As such, each city-state needed an army to protect itself from its neighbors. I'll explore this militarization in more depth in the future. As you probably can surmise, Sumerian agriculture depended heavily on irrigation. The irrigation was accomplished by the use of canals, channels, dikes, weirs, and reservoirs. The frequent violent floods of the Tigris, and less frequently of the Euphrates, meant that the canals required constant repair and removal of silt. And also survey markers and boundary stones needed to be continually replaced. The government required individuals to work on the canals without pay as part of their civic duty. Although the rich were able to exempt themselves through the payment of a tax. As is known from what has been modernly dubbed the Sumerians' Farmer's Almanac, after the flood season, the spring equinox, and the New Year festival, farmers would, using the canals, flood their fields and then drain the water. Next, they made oxen trample the ground to kill the weeds. Then, they dragged the fields with pickaxes. After drying, they plowed, harrowed, and raked the ground three times and pulverized it with a before planting a single seed. Unfortunately, and probably unknown to them, the high evaporation rates in this arid climate resulted in a gradual increase in the salinity of the fields. Around the 21st century BC, farmers had to switch from wheat to the more salt-tolerant barley as their principal crop. They also grew chickpeas, lentils, dates, onions, garlic, lettuce, leeks, and mustard... Sumerians caught many fish and hunted fowl and gazelle. They also harvested the crops during the spring in three-person teams, consisting of a reaper, a binder, and a sheaf handler. I'll let you guess which one of these three was the most grim. The farmers would use threshing wagons, driven by oxen, to separate the cereal heads from the stalks, and then use threshing sleds to disengage the grain. They then separated the wheat from the chaff via winnowing, essentially using a pitchfork to throw it in the air where the wind would divide the two. The entire process, which many believed they invented, would remain essentially unchanged until the Industrial Revolution. Sumer was also the site of the early development of writing, progressing from a stage of proto-writing in the mid-4th millennium B.C. to writing proper in the 3rd millennium B.C., However, some scholars contest the idea of a proto euphradian language, or one substrate language. It has been suggested that the Sumerian language was originally that of the Hunter and Fisher peoples, who lived in the marshland in the eastern Arabia coastal region, and were part of the Arabian culture. Making the whole thing unclear is that reliable historical records begin much later. In fact, there are no such records in Sumer of any kind, that have been dated before Emma Bargassi in about the 26th century BC. I'll get to Emma Bargassi in a bit. The earliest clay tablets depict complex arithmetic calculation, such as the areas of field plots. However, they have never been fully deciphered, and it is not even certain that the few words on them represent the Sumerian language. The development of a system of governance led to the development of tablets around 3500 BC, and this led to ideographic writing around 3100 B.C. You may be wondering how this came about, as are many archaeologists. The simplest explanation is that with the agrarian society, it became necessary to track the ownership of land, and clay tablets with the rudimentary writing provided a permanent way of keeping these records, so permanent that they have lasted at least 5,000 years. Also, ideographic writing is simply the use of a symbol for a thought or a sound. Think of Chinese writing or Roman numerals. Next, a logographic writing developed around 2500 BC. Logographic is not terribly dissimilar from ideographic. It's just the next step in language evolution. One of the more interesting aspects of these clay tablets from this period onward is that they were apparently so pervasive that they were frequently discarded as many discovered by present-day archaeologists are found in ancient trash heaps, or sometimes they were repurposed as fill in the leveling of building foundations for their construction projects. These tablets are not physically large, as most were made to fit in the palm of a hand. A consequence of the location of these finds is that it is somewhat difficult to establish when these tablets were initially created. Probably the most important archaeological discoveries in Sumer are a large number of tablets written in cuneiform. Sumerian writing, while proven to be not the oldest example of writing on Earth, is considered to be a great milestone in the development of man's ability to document history. Also, this writing proved important in the creating of pieces of literature both in the form of poetic epics and stories, and for prayers and laws. Although pictures, aka hieroglyphs, were first used, symbols were later made to resemble syllables. Triangular or wedge-shaped reeds were used to write on moist clay. A large body of hundreds of thousands of texts in the Sumerian language have survived, such as personal or business letters, receipts, lexical lists, laws, hymns, prayers, stories, daily records, and even libraries full of clay tablets. Monumental inscriptions and texts on different objects like statues or bricks are also very common. Many texts survive in multiple copies because they were repeatedly transcribed by scribes in training. It is these tablets that have yielded us so much knowledge about the Sumerian society. The Sumerian language is generally regarded as an isolated language in linguistics because it belongs to no other non-language family. Understanding Sumerian texts today can be problematic even for experts. Most difficult are the earliest texts, which in many cases do not give the full grammatical structure of the language the Sumerians developed a writing system whose wedge-shaped strokes would have influenced the stylus scripts in the same geographic area for the next 3,000 years. Some researchers believe that they have traced the origins of the Sumerian writing system. For 5,000 years before the appearance of writing in Mesopotamia, there were small clay objects in abstract shapes called clay tokens, which were apparently used for counting agriculture and manufactured goods. Well, manufactured may be the wrong word to use here, But you should understand the concept. As time went by, the ancient Mesopotamians realized that they needed a way to keep all the clay tokens together, in a secure manner, to prevent loss, theft, and the like. So they started putting multiple clay tokens into a large, hollow clay container, which they then sealed up. However, once sealed, the problem of remembering how many tokens were inside the container arose. To solve the problem, the Mesopotamians started impressing pictures of the clay tokens on the surface of the clay container with a stylus. So, logic taking over, if there were five clay tokens inside, they would impress the picture of the token five times, and so the problem of what and how many were inside the container was solved. Subsequently, the ancient Mesopotamians stopped using clay tokens altogether and simply impressed the symbol of the clay tokens on wet clay surfaces. In addition to symbols derived from clay tokens, they also added other symbols that were more pictographic in nature. And as time wore on, instead of repeating the same picture over and over again to represent multiple objects of the same type, they used different kinds of small marks to count the number of objects, thus adding a system for enumerating objects to their emerging system of symbols. Examples of this early system represent some of the earliest texts found in the Sumerian cities of Uruk and Jadap Nasser around 3300 BC. In my opinion, the use of abstract symbols to represent things and ideas was perhaps one of humankind's monumental achievements. Just refer back to the Origin of Languages episode for more detail. The Sumerian writing system during the early periods was constantly in flux. But that, of course, is the nature of anything that is emerging. For example, the original direction of writing was from top to bottom, but for yet unknown reasons, the direction changed from left to right very early on, thought to be around 3000 BC. Another change in this early system involved the style of the signs. The early signs were more linear, in that the strokes making up the signs were lines and curves. But starting after 3000 BC, these strokes started to evolve into wedges, thus changing the visual style of the signs from linear to what we now know as cuneiform. By 2800 BC, the writing system started to exhibit the use of phonetic elements. The Sumerian language had a high number of monosyllabic words. There was a high degree of what linguists call homophony, meaning that there is a large number of words that sound alike or are practically identical. This presented the possibility of what is called rebus writing, where the sign for one word is used to represent another word that has a similar or identical sound. One example from their language is the word tie, phonetically spelled in English t-i, meaning arrow, which is similar to their word "til," spelled t-i-l, meaning life. So to write life, the ancient Sumerians wrote the sign for arrow. Eventually the logogram, meaning the symbol for arrow, became a syllabogram, meaning a word to represent the sound tie. Similarly, other logograms also became syllabograms. There were many other types of practices that were established in the ever-evolving written Sumerian language, but they are in reality too deep and off-topic for this podcast. While they were developing a somewhat abstract writing language, the Sumerians were also developing a numeric system. While it's difficult for us, at least on the surface, with our widely practiced base-10 numbering system to understand something different, It's not entirely impossible. The Sumerian numeric system is that the numeric system is both decimal, meaning base 10, and sexadecimal, meaning base 60. This means that there are unique symbols for each of the bases, as well as combinations and powers of the bases. So, for example, the number 9 would be represented by 9 copies of the 1 sign, but the number 10 would be represented only by the 10 sign. The number 60 would be represented only by the 60 sign. And the number 70 would be the 60 sign followed by the 10 sign. Sound confusing? Just think of their number 60 in a fashion similar to that of our number 100. But you would never want to live with that numbering system, would you? After all, it would be too confusing. But then again, how many seconds are in a minute? And how many minutes are in an hour? The concept of 60 seconds and 60 minutes are based on the Sumerian numeric system, which began some 5,000 years ago. Later Mesopotamian people, such as the Babylonians, Assyrians, and Persians, adopted this numeric system, but modified it so that it became positional, similar to what we use today. This reduced the system to only two variables, the number and its position relative to the other numbers, like the digit 1 embedded in the number 15, where the position of the number within a string of numbers changes its quantity. Still confused? It's just like 1 in the number 100 is different from the 1 in the number 10,000 in our modern numeric system. Unlike their numbering system, the Sumerian writing system was adopted and modified by other contemporaneous Mesopotamian people, such as the Akkadians and the Babylonians, and lasted perhaps longer than any other written language in history. But the spoken Sumerian language died out around the 18th century BC, and I'll get to the reasons for that at some point in the future. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll do a deeper dive into Sumerian history. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. If you're enjoying the podcast, log on to iTunes and give the podcast a like or maybe even a positive review. Doing so will help others to find it. And while you're at it, log on to the podcast's Facebook page and give it a like. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.